Philippians 1, I'm going to read verses 1 to 11. Philippians 1, verses 1 to 11. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is our focal point, verses 9 to 11. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, we do delight together to be here underneath your word. Father, this is a unique circumstance. And we entrust ourselves and have entrusted ourselves to your sovereign, good, wise care. And as we gather this morning in person and over the internet, Father, we ask that your word would come alive to us, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in it, and that as we see it unfolded, that it would impart wisdom and light to us. Help us, Father, to be resolved during this season uh, to pray diligently for one another in the area of health, but even more, Father, in the area of spiritual growth and faithfulness. Our desire is to please you and to live faithfully. Help us, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the year is AD 61, and the Apostle Paul has been in a Roman prison for nearly two years. And from this prison, Paul wrote Philemon, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philippians. He was hopeful that he would be released soon, but there was no certainty. He had spent his life, spent his life. It's not just a figure of speech. His life had been spent for Christ. He loved Jesus, and he loved Jesus' church, and he relentlessly pursued the growth of the Lord's people. In fact, Paul's joy, we find in Philippians, was so tied up in the joy and growth of Christ's church that he was joyfully, gladly, willing to bear any physical suffering that might come his way. His love for Christ and his love for the church led him to suffer immensely. And as we're seeing in our study through Colossians, he, he suffered physically and he did so with joy. Well, in addition to the physical sufferings that Paul faced, there was another burden that pressed on Paul constantly. 
And we see that manifested in his writings. This was the burdensome reality that many of those who had labored with Paul in gospel ministry, his fellow workers, leaders, faithful men and women, many of these people had actually fallen away or fully abandoned Paul. These were men like Hymenaeus and Alexander, who, according to 1 Timothy 1.20, had made shipwreck of their faith. Men like Phygelus and Hermogenes, who had apparently shown great promise as leaders, but had somewhere along the way disqualified themselves and no longer followed Paul. And actually, these two men, Phygelus and Hermogenes, were among the people whom Paul said, all in Asia have left me. It's just this tragic statement. And these sort of defections from this small group of leaders would have been unimaginably painful for Paul. Just as it's painful today when we hear of someone who goes away, who denounces what they once proclaimed. Now these painful defections had two, I think, two powerful effects on the Apostle Paul. The first one, the first effect, was that it would have made Paul overjoyed for those who actually persevered and stood with him. In the light of people who were defecting, the people that persevered and, and stayed with Paul, they would have brought just an overwhelming joy to the apostle. We see this uh, in the way that Paul talks about Timothy. It's his beloved son. We also see this in the way that he talks about a man named Epaphroditus. If you look in chapter 1, actually chapter 2, Verses 25 to 27, this is what Paul says of Epaphroditus. You can see his heart for this brother. But I thought, it was, I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. And Paul treasured this friendship with Epaphroditus because he was a faithful brother, and he was being fruitful. And apparently he was sick, and the church in Philippi was just concerned with him, and Paul was concerned with him, and Paul rejoiced that God in his kindness preserved this brother's life. And I think that, you know, that is in large part because so many people were defecting and leaving Paul that brothers who, and sisters who were faithful just brought a certain joy. It, it forged deeper affection in Paul for those who had been faithful. So that was the first thing. The second thing that it did as far as defections is that I think it increased Paul's concerns for the churches that they would actually press on and persevere. In an environment where people are being persecuted and people are kind of falling away or rejecting Christ, it increased in Paul a concern that God's people would press on and be faithful. It's a concern that we have today. In a world where people are constantly drifting, it's good for us to be reminded to press on. 
Well, Paul had this concern, this concern that churches would continue to grow and prove to be the elect of God. Paul was aware that Christians were engaged in an all-out war. This was not a vacation mindset. Think Ephesians 6. You're in a war. And Paul knew that there would be casualties. He knew that it was dangerous. So his desire was that believers would be fully engaged in gospel efforts and all the while not grow content in their own spiritual stature. It's always a danger. You could be content. Actually, a direct course to shipwrecking your faith is thinking that you have arrived. Paul says, "Beware, lest you let the one who thinks that he stand beware lest he fall." So, in our text this morning, we see this latter concern of Paul that that people would persevere and continue in and press on in the faith. We see that expressed in this prayer. And and really, what this is, is Philippians one nine through eleven, is another prayer report, another prayer report of the apostle Paul. I say another because we've spent the past two weeks looking at a couple of prayer reports from Paul describing how he prayed for the churches that he loved so dearly. And we've seen that Paul's prayers can form a sort of model for us on how to pray for each other. And once again, we're at a Pauline text, and our desire is to learn, okay, how, how can we learn from Paul how to pray for one another uh, from this specific passage. Well, I think this text has a lot to say about that. And this morning, we want to look at this brief prayer report to this young church in Philippi. Philippi, The church in Philippi was 10, 15 years old. It's a young church. Young church facing difficulty. A young church dedicated to gospel work. And a young church that was really dear to the apostles' heart. And as Paul nears death, and his, his future is uncertain, and it really, from a human perspective, his future lies entirely in the hands of the Romans at this point. He's still in jail. He thinks he's probably going to be released. Not sure what's going to happen. And he writes this letter to the Philippians. And our focus here, verses 9 to 11, let's read that. And this I pray, Paul says, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And what we see in this prayer is Paul's great desire for these people. And that desire is that they would continue to grow in love. And that their love would mature and result in a pure, blameless, and fruitful life until the day of Christ. So I'm going to read that again. Paul's desire is that this people, these people would continue to grow in love and that their love would mature and result in a pure, blameless, and fruitful life Until the day of Christ. The key thought in this text is mature love. Maturing love. Mature love is Paul's desire for these people. And in these few verses, he gives us crucial elements of what mature love looks like. What are the crucial elements of mature love? And he gives us five. 
There are five elements, and you'll see those in your, in your handout. Five elements of mature love. And what's really curious about this passage is that it, there's a progression in each section. So he's talking about mature love, but as he moves along, you get this uh, literary picture of love maturing until it's full blossom in the day of Christ. So it's just a really sweet, beautiful passage. So what I wanted to do is just follow along Paul's progression and hope to make specific applications on how we can pray this sort of prayer for others. All right, so we'll, we'll do that together. First, mature love continues to grow. Mature love continues to, go, to grow. Now, the Christians in Philippi were extraordinarily faithful. Uh, they had proved their faithfulness to Christ by supporting Paul during his imprisonment, by, committi- or by committing their finances and energies and efforts to Paul's work. They're commended by Paul for their partnership in the gospel. And Paul was confident that God would continue his work in the church in Philippi. And so this church had a commendation from the Apostle Paul. You guys have it all together. You're doing it right. Things are going really well. Keep up the good work. I mean, just imagine, um, you know, someone we revere and respect, a spiritual hero coming in to our Sunday school class and saying, you guys... Right? Oh, you've got it. You've got it together. You're doing well. Um, I'm impressed by your efforts and work. Praise the Lord. I wish every church would be like you. Um, I'm just amazed at what's, what God is doing in you. Imagine what that would feel like. It'd be encouraging, right? It'd be very encouraging, motivating. You might even have the, the tendency to think, oh, okay, we are doing really good. Now look at that church over there. Look at them. We've, we've arrived. We're getting there at least. and we're, we're, we're leaps and bounds ahead of others. Well, this is what we have in Philippi. The church is excelling. Paul commends them. Yet, just, yet regardless of their faithfulness and Paul's commendation of them, Paul's desire and prayer for them is in verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more. They have love. They have love that is abounding. They're excelling. Things are going great. But Paul's desire is that their love would abound still more and more. This is essentially Paul saying, my prayer is that you continue to grow. It's a similar thing that we read in 1 Thessalonians 4.1 where Paul says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. You received instruction on how you ought to live. You're doing it. Praise the Lord. Our desire is that you keep doing it. Excel still more. This is the desire. And Paul's concern with the Philippians is that 
they don't become spiritually stagnant or proud or or think that they've arrived. And his desire is that they would they would continue to excel in love. Their love would grow. And this really is a mark of mature love. The first mark of mature love is that it is growing love. The person who has a mature godly love never says, I've arrived. Never. The spiritually mature person is always looking at how their weak, feeble love can grow to greater resemble the deep love of God. So there's always progress. Pastor Dan called this idea a few weeks ago a holy discontentment. A holy discontentment. That, that is the mark of mature love. It's a holy discontentment. While you love, you look at Christ's love. And you see the, the depth and richness of Christ's love. And you think, I've never loved a day in my life. All right, that's, a, that's a holy, mature love. There ought to be, in each one of us, a desire to excel still more. A desire to love more like God. Of course, we pray, or we praise God that we've grown, but we press on towards greater conformity to Christ. And this is really Paul's model in Philippians. Uh, the key passage in Philippians is Philippians 1.27. And this is what Paul says there. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. Moving, laboring, striving. There's no idleness here. There's no I have arrived-ness. I just made up a word. There's no stagnation. Right? It's movement. And, and Paul, even better, I think, models this in Philippians 3. Flip over to Philippians 3. This is a great text. Um, we can read verses 7 to 11, but we'll jump, jump to verse 12. Verses 7 to 11, Paul's talking about how he presses, or how whatever gains he had, he counts as loss, so that he may, arrive, may, may lay hold of the righteousness of Christ. That's his desire. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect. But notice he says, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then notice verse 15. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect or mature, have this attitude. Let us, therefore, as many as are mature, have this attitude. What attitude, Paul? The attitude of pressing on towards the prize. I do not think I've made it my own, own but I press on. The mature person has that mentality. 
Mature love is marked by a holy discontentment, a desire to grow. And we each have to be marked by that sort of love. In his journal, American missionary David Brainerd wrote, Oh, that I might not loiter on my heavenly journey. Oh, that I might not loiter on my heavenly journey. Loiter, linger, loaf, be idle on my heavenly journey. The stakes are too high for us to loiter. At heaven and hell, the eternal state of souls, this is, this is what we live for. The stakes are too high to loiter. And David Brainerd, if you read his story, I think Dan's preached a biographical sermon on David Brainerd. You can pull it up on the app, I think. He didn't loiter. He was not idle. He was constantly pressing on. And so may we then say with Paul, I press on toward the goal for the prize, the upward call of God in Christ. Now we will say this. We will say this with Paul if we have a mature godly love. Because mature love is growing. So how then do we pray this kind of prayer? Well, we simply can pray that others, the love of others would continually mature and grow. You're doing well, brother, but I pray that your love would continue to mature and grow. So Paul prays that, but he also goes further. He doesn't just pray your mature, that your love would mature. He actually wants their love to grow in a specific direction. Look at verse 9. Paul says, I pray that your love would abound still more and more in or with real knowledge and all discernment. So the direction that love grows in its maturing is in real knowledge and discernment. This is a very specific direction and it's characteristic of mature godly love. Although you don't often see knowledge and discernment touted as uh, the marks of mature love in our culture. What's more, these marks seem to be absent from the bro- broader spectrum of evangelicalism. You don't think of love, and love is not written and talked about as if its key trademarks are knowledge and discernment. But to Paul, mature love is marked by those two characteristics. Knowledge and discernment. Love, to many though, is simply a sort of empty sentimentality or emotionalism. Love would never confront sin or speak dogmatically about biblical truth. Love would never do that. But godly love does. Godly love is not vacuous sentimentality. Godly, mature love is this. It's a warm regard for an interest in another that is marked by knowledge and discernment, according to Philippians 1, 9. It's a warm regard for an interest in another that is marked by knowledge and discernment. Knowledge and discernment. And we're saying marked by, but we could also say regulated by. Love, mature godly love, is regulated by knowledge and discernment. What does that mean, knowledge and discernment? Well, the word knowledge here is the Greek word for knowledge, gnosis. 
common word, and it has a preposition attached to it. And so the preposition here makes the word emphatic, which is why the NASB has real knowledge. And there's an emphasis here on knowledge. It's a knowledge that's true. It's a knowledge that that comprehends or grasps something. It's like this, 1 Corinthians 14.20. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. The kind of knowledge here is a mature, developed knowledge. It's a knowledge that has grasped something. I think 1 Peter 3 captures what that something is. Peter writes, 1 Peter 3, 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. Notice that phrase, be on your guard. Be alert. Beware. Be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The kind of knowledge that we're after here is the growing of the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Just to put it simply, how do we do that? Well, it's the growth in the knowledge of God's Word. Growth in the knowledge of God's Word. We, we're able to recognize Christ for who He truly, truly is through the diligent, disciplined, careful study and analysis of God's Word. In God's Word, we find reality. And God's Word becomes the standard by which we're able to measure everything else. The goal of the Christian life is to continue to grow in the comprehension of key truths. Who God is. Who we are. Who Christ is. What is the gospel? What is sin? And Paul's desire is that love would be, the love of the Philippians, would be matured along the lines of a mature knowledge. A true comprehension of God in his word. This is this is again Paul in Philippians 3:10. He says, "I press on so that I may know him." Godly love is knowledgeable. Mature love is marked not just by an empty, you know, kind of bookshelf knowledge, you know, it gets a library in your mind and you just pull off these things and it's dry disconnected truth. No, the idea here is a comprehension and grasp of these truths. Mature love is marked by mature knowledge. Secondly, he says discernment. The word discernment here refers to the capacity to perceive clearly and hence to understand the real nature of something. The ability to perceive and see clearly and understand the real nature of something. So if real knowledge refers primarily to God, who God is, God and His Word, 
Discernment typically is is speaking more horizontally in relationships. It's the responsibility that we have to distinguish good and evil, right, wrong. It's an ethical word. And so mature love has a real grasp of God's word. And with God's word as the standard, the plumb line, it's able to evaluate other things And that's called discernment. Discernment, then, is the ability to distinguish distinguish truth from error. I think C.H. Spurgeon actually said it this way. Uh, Real discernment is the ability to discern what is right from what is almost right. That's the real dilemma, isn't it? Uh, For example, last night we were laying in bed. And uh, Savannah had somehow found this article that she was reading on the coronavirus. And there was some prophetess who, in the name of Jesus, had declared coronavirus to be illegal. What is that? I didn't even know what to say. And so Savannah looked up the lady and we heard her talk and... It was just, it was the most ridiculous thing, I think, that, or one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. I've heard a lot of ridiculous things in my life. But, you know, that's easy for us, anyway. I mean, we, we, we can look at that and think, this is outrageous. This is almost, this is blasphemous. This is not, this is not true. That's important. We have to be able to discern that sort of error. But the real challenge comes when there are people in our own camp as we could say, who are erring. You know, godly, mature love is able to discern what is right from what is almost right. I think of J.I. Packer. He made a statement once. He said, uh, um, a half-truth presented as a whole truth is a complete lie. So it's, there's a lot of half-truths out there. And, and mature love doesn't just blindly accept whatever anyone says because love, you know, judges not. And here, you know, whatever you have to say, I'll just take it. There's a funny story that John MacArthur tells about in a trip to Arkansas. Um, you guys have probably heard it, uh, where he, he came and he, he, they were on a trip. Uh, they had a certain destination. They stopped in Arkansas, and, and he, had a, uh, he was looking for a quilt for his wife. So he stopped at this quilt maker's house. Out in the middle of nowhere, it sounds like. And he goes in, and uh, he walks in, and it's a lady's house, and her husband is there, and he notices that she's sitting there, and she, he has all the, you know, these stacks of books, and he notices all the different authors that he's reading, and, you know, from the most extreme to the next extreme. And so he, you know, he, he asks eventually, what are you doing? And the guy looks at John MacArthur, and he says, well, there's good in each one of these. And MacArthur, I think he just left. Uh, he may have said something. I forget how he ends the story. But the point that he makes is that this guy had sort of a patchwork quilt theology because he had no discernment. And discernment is such a crucial thing. And it's, um, it's a rarity in our churches today. We just sort of blindly accept things because we think that love is empty sentimentality. It's just, but that's not mature, godly love. 
Jesus said that false teachers would come and that they would look like us, actually. But inside, they would actually be ravenous wolves. There's a great need for discernment. So how do we develop discernment? How do we develop the kind of discernment that marks mature godly love? Well, Hebrews 5 is is helpful. So you can flip there to Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5, verses 12 to 14. The writer of Hebrews writes, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. So the situation here, this church, these people ought to have been more mature. But now Paul's having to come along again and he's having to teach them again the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food, he writes. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. There was a deficiency in these people. The deficiency was... They had neglected the oracles of God. They neglected God's word. And because they had neglected the diligent, disciplined study of God's word, they needed to be taught God's word again. Not in a mature way, but in an in a, a infant, basic type of way. Because, and the reason is, they had neglected God's word and they had failed to practice discernment. And so their senses had not been trained to discern good from evil. So they'd given themselves rather to to other things and not to growth in God's word so that they could discern good from evil. Discernment doesn't happen like that. I had a conversation this week with a a brother who was telling me his, his story how he came to know the Lord, how he arrived here at Calvary. And he, he made just the off comment that they were attending a church early on and they were driving, I think he said, almost two hours back and forth because he realized at that early phase that he did not have the discernment to go out and find a healthy church. And so he, he and his family traveled multiple hours to be at this church Until he got to the point where he realized, okay, I now have the discernment to discern a healthy and an unhealthy church. And my comment was, praise the Lord, you had enough discernment to know that you had no discernment. (laughs) This is a dire need in the church, discernment. So, mature love is regulated by true knowledge of God from God's word. And it's also regulated by discernment, or honed by discernment. In other words, godly love, regardless of what we hear, godly love is not blind. It's knowledgeable, it's discerning. So how do we, play, uh, how do we apply this to prayer? We pray that the love of others would mature and, and be regulated or honed more and more by real knowledge and discernment. That's why we come to Sunday school. 
So we come, one of the reasons we, we fellowship uh, together in small groups and other um, meetings so that we can grow and facilitate and cultivate love for one another. We're being faithful to Hebrews 10.25. But also so that we can grow in our understanding of God's word so that we can exercise discernment and so demonstrate that we have a love that's maturing. Third, the goal of discernment. What is it? What is the goal of discernment? You read about discernment blogs, people who make it their um, purpose in life to discern every book and teaching. And you know, all of a sudden you find out a guy that you loved before is now a heretic because some very vague reason. You know, there are guys who are over-the-top discernment bloggers. If you're not aware of that, it's, it's a real thing. <laughs> Um, but what's the purpose of discernment? It's so that we can look down our nose at people who are not as theologically nuanced as we are. No, the purpose of discernment is verse 10. So that, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. The end of discernment is the approval of, of what is excellent. The immediate outworking of mature love that is regulated by real knowledge and discernment is the ability to approve that which is excellent. That's the goal. Approving what is excellent. It's a familiar word, dokimazo. I only say that because it's said a lot, and if you study the New Testament, you're, you're probably aware of that word. It refers to making a critical judgment of something to determine its value or genuineness. It's the examination or testing of something to determine its quality. And in this case, the goal is to examine and determine that which is excellent. It's the same word that's used in Romans 12, 2, where Paul writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that you may... Prove or approve what is excellent, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, what the will of God is. It's used again in Ephesians 5.10, where Paul writes, Try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Try to learn, examine, diligently um, develop the ability to differentiate that which is pleasing to God and that which is not pleasing to God. In other words, discern the will of God. Discern what is pleasing to Him. The idea in both of these passage, passages is that that which is excellent is that which honors God. Discernment then has as its goal the ability to know and to do what honors God. That's the end. We discern so that we can know what to do, what to say, how to live in a way that honors God. That's what is excellent. Not spiritual arrogance or haughtiness. No. The goal is the positive approval of what pleases God. 
And this really is, I think, the driving point of Paul's whole uh, prayer here, verse 10. I think his main idea is that their love would mature and mature so that they would come to the place where they might approve what is excellent. That's his desire. Mature love grows. It's marked by knowledge and discernment. So that the one who loves the Lord and is maturing will be able to live a life that pleases God. That's the point. So how do we pray this for others? We pray that others would be enabled by their mature, growing love to approve what is excellent and so to live a life that is pleasing to God. So we pray that the love of others would mature, that it would be regulated by knowledge and discernment so that they would be able to approve what is excellent and live pleasing to God. You see how this is kind of progressing? So... That's what mature love does. But the progression continues in verse 10. So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. So we're we're progressing on. The purpose of discernment is to approve what is excellent so that your life will be pure blameless, and fruitful. While the Philippians were growing, maturing, godly, faithful people, Paul knew that without maturing love, they would be in danger. They would be vulnerable. Without a love that is regulated by knowledge and discernment and the ability to approve what is pleasing to God, they would drift And their life would not be characterized by these three traits of purity, blamelessness, and fruitfulness. If you think of what is the end of your life, if you could could, write your life story in any way, what would be the three characteristics that mark your life? I think these would be great characteristics. Purity, blamelessness, and fruitfulness. God, make me pure. (laughs) Help me to be blameless and cause me to be fruitful. Those are desires that I think every Christian has. How do we get them? Well, we get them through a maturing, godly love. The word pure here means unalloyed or not mixed. It refers to the practice of, of mixing metals, where you would mix a precious metal with an inferior metal and so lower the quality of that metal. And the idea, the picture is clear. You don't want to be mixed. We don't want to be mixed. Mixed with what? Well, we don't want to be mixed with the sinful, rebellious desires of the world. We don't want to be compromised. We don't want to live a compromised life. We want to be pure and unmixed so that we have no need to convey that we're something that we're not. You mix a metal with a a cheaper, less valuable metal, and you can pass it off as being a higher quality than it is. Another way to say that is pretentious. You're trying to convey that you're something that you're really not. That's the opposite of purity here. That's why the NASB says sincere. 
Sincere is the idea. Pure, I think, captures it just as good. Pure, unmixed. That's the goal. Mature love results or produces a pure life. It also produces a blameless life. Blameless is just simply without fault. Your life is pure and it's blameless. You're not causing other people to stumble. Your life is lived in a way that's pleasing to God. Isn't that our desire? We long for that. And notice the time stamp in verse 10. That you may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. That your life would be marked by the traits of purity and blamelessness until Jesus returns. We see this idea, uh, this this idea in Paul's writing and Peter's writing that Christ is coming. So in view of his coming, live faithfully. Philippians 2, 14 to 16. Paul exhorts the Philippians to press on and to live as blameless, innocent children above reproach so that in the day of Christ, he'll have reason to glory that he did not run in vain. All right, so... The Christian life is lived in view of Christ's coming. So we always keep that in mind. We think of 2 Peter 3, 10-12, where Peter says, Since all these things are to be destroyed, what sort of people ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? Right? Mature love always is living with the end in mind. Knowing that Christ will come. I think of Jonathan Edwards' Resolutions, this, this constant awareness that, you know, he would say things like, on my deathbed, I don't want to do anything that I would be ashamed I did when lying on my deathbed, knowing that the end is near. If we lived that sort of way, our lives would issue forth in purity and blamelessness. Mature love lives with the end in mind. Um, it's marked by godliness, purity, blamelessness, because we are aware. Remember the knowledge dynamic. We've grasped. We've come to grips with the reality that one day we'll stand before Jesus and give an account for our lives. And we know that this is certain and we don't want to be found um, loitering when our king returns. Third, fruitfulness. Paul gives one more product of mature love in verse 11. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. The fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. So you've got purity, blamelessness. Mature love is producing these qualities. And it also produces a fruitful life. The fruit of righteousness here is a difficult phrase. There's a lot of there's several different ways to interpret this passage. I think the best way, though, is to understand that the fruit of righteousness is the fruit which righteousness produces. It's a common phrase in the Old Testament. The fruit of the righteous man. Proverbs 11.30. The fruit of the righteous person. Think of Psalm 1. It's like a, a man planted by streams. Bearing fruit in season. 
the mature love, the, the love of the mature person, is issuing forth in purity, blamelessness, but it's also producing a righteous life, right? Righteous living. Righteous living then produces fruitfulness. There's just this connection that you won't live righteously if you don't have discernment and knowledge. You don't have discernment and knowledge if you don't have love. You won't have discernment and knowledge if you don't have a maturing love. So the progression then is this. Let me just say it forward. I just said it backwards. Mature love grows. It's regulated by knowledge and discernment. It's able to approve what is excellent. And then it produces a pure, blameless, righteous, fruitful life. But notice something that's very important in verse 11. Filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through what? Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus is the ultimate source of a pure, blameless, fruitful, righteous life. We must never forget that. Even while we, we exhort one another in a Philippians 1.27 kind of way, walk worthy of the gospel. We're, we're exhorting one another to live righteously, holy, blameless, faithful in the world. We never want to forget that while we exhort one another to do this, we're exhorting one another to pursue holiness and godliness because God is working. The key text there is Philippians 2, verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why, Paul? Verse 13. For God is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So you have those two truths. Work and be diligent. Cultivate a life of discernment and knowledge and blamelessness and purity because Christ is at work in you to produce these things. We, we have to remember that. That is the key, I think. Um, or maybe that is more like a sword to fight off spiritual pride. Right? Remember that whatever we have has been given to us. All the while we work really hard to get it. That's 1 Corinthians 15. So how do we pray? We pray that the love of others would mature and issue forth in a pure, blameless, and fruitful life until Jesus returns. It's a good prayer for one another. Well, it's a good prayer because it's from the book. <laughs> but it's a good prayer when you think about how we can be diligent to pray for one another. We're const- Now, at least, we're thinking of specifically of praying for the health of one another, and that's important. Right? This is a a time where we're, we're thinking about other people and Christians really stand as a light in this world right now. We went to the grocery store and uh, we needed dish soap. That's all we needed. You know, one bottle of dish soap. We go to the grocery store and there's none to be found. Thankfully, we have a little bit more, um, but we just needed a bottle of dish soap. Why was there no dish soap? 
because people are walking out with you know bag, um, baskets of dish soap and toilet paper and all this stuff and um, you know it's an evidence of us we're, we're only thinking about ourselves. I'm not whining here that we, we're going to be okay. All right. <laughs> but the tendency of the world around us is to hoard for who? Not so that I can help my neighbors. So I can help me. That's why these memes are funny that we see going around because it's a reflection of the sinful heart. It's, 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 it's inward focused. Mature love, though, is godly love. And it's fixated above all on Christ, but it doesn't hoard for one's own good. It looks how it can love. And right now, we do stand really as lights. And so we're thinking about how to pray for one another's health, but it's a good opportunity to pray for one another that we would truly shine and be generous and trust the Lord for sure. So we can pray that. And then lastly, Paul closes in typical Pauline fashion. Having been filled with the, righteous, the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is a familiar theme with Paul. The ultimate goal and end of mature love is the glory and praise of God. That is the aim of our lives. It's the aim of everything we do. The praise and glory of God. Now, tracking from verse 9 all the way to verse 11, you can see how this progresses. Paul prays. Paul writes, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge, and all discernment, so that you may approve the things which are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Father, would you work this sort of mature love in us? We confess each that our love is so weak and feeble. And when we look at the need of the hour and see how frail we are, we're reminded that you are kindly at work in us. Even when we are constantly falling short of our own estimation, when we feel the weight and pressure of our own incompetence and inability, when the trials are weighing so heavily on us, when we feel that we can't move on, we're reminded, Lord, that you, through Christ, are at work in your people, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. And so we pray for one another this morning. We pray that you would be at work now, maturing our love so that we would be marked by knowledge and discernment, so that we might approve that which is excellent, and so that we might stand pure and blameless and fruitful when we see the king at last. So that you, Lord, would be glorified and honored 
even now as we yearn for your return. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.